0: Colossians 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning. Uh, Anybody notice anything new in the room today? If you haven't, you're sitting on it right now. And you know some of you have been going to the church for 20 years, and you're all of a sudden like, whoa, we got new chairs. You got new chairs? Now, I noticed when I sat down a minute ago, they're not broken in yet. <laughs> now, the good thing for me and Lloyd is this is going to help you stay awake while we teach. But let me welcome you uh, as well and and just add to Carl's words. My name is Rob and I'm glad that you're here because as we've already been doing, we gather here to worship, we gather here to hear from God's word and we gather here then to be sent out for the sake of our our world, our community we live in. And I love hearing Carl's passion and the way that he is leading this initiative and how much of of us it feels like as we engage our world through that uh, concert. A lot more you'll be hearing about that in the next few weeks. If you haven't already, open your Bibles up to the passage that was just read. If you have your Colossians journal, we are in chapter two, officially starting a new chapter after 11 weeks, whatever it's been. We're on page 10 of the Colossians journal, if you have that. If not, just open your Bible to Colossians chapter two. Now, I'm going to start out by doing a little bit something different this morning, I'm going to do some math. Now, I've never said those words in a sermon before. Today, we're going to do some math, and half of you in the room are like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be awful, and others of you are like, I've been waiting for this, you know, because we talk about literature in here sometimes, we talk about grammar a lot in here, talk about history a lot in here, we talk about science sometimes. I don't think we've ever talked about math. Today, we're going to talk about math. We're going to do a little bit of math. Now, it's not complicated math, because I don't think I could... Do complicated math, but it is math nonetheless, and I, I want to show you what, what I like to call the value equation. This is very practical math. In fact, this is an equation that you do a thousand times a day without even realizing it. Every time you go to make a purchase decision, you're running this equation in your mind. Value equals what you get divided by, this is where the math comes in, what you give. Now there's different words you could put to this, you know. You could do, um, you know, benefit over cost, or but I'm going to call it what you get divided by what you give. Now just a little math refresher. The top part is called the. Anyone remember? The numerator. The bottom part is the denominator. And I had to look that up because I forgot. But I learned a little trick this week. Nice dog. Numerator over denominator, you'll never forget that now. All right, what you get divided by what you give, that equals value. Now, 1,000 times a day, you're making this value assessment. You're gonna go in, you're gonna buy a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee's worth a certain amount to you. If suddenly you show up to Starbucks, they're charging $28 for a cup of coffee, a few of you might not make that decision. The rest of you probably still would, because it's coffee, but you're running this equation. It's not just money that you're evaluating throughout the day, how about your time? for you to come here this morning, for you to make any decision that's gonna require you to give some of your time, you need to know what you're getting. Now, retailers know this equation and they like to play tricks on us with this equation. My favorite little trick is uh, my wife recently went shopping at a, a local retail store that puts on the receipt how much money you saved so it's not just what you spent, it's what you saved, and that's the difference between what you paid and what they thought you should pay You know, at some other store, and there's the discounts and the 20% coupon and all that goes into this calculation. And so my wife's favorite thing is she comes home with this receipt and she just says, look at this, I saved more than I spent. And so for her perspective, you know, she's got the bags of stuff she bought and she saved money. It's like, how good is that? I'm thinking, Jody it doesn't quite work that way. (laughs) But it made her feel good to know this. Now, uh, I actually believe we can this morning engage this value equation in some mental math I want to invite you to do. And first thing I want you to do is is see what what's the highest bill you have in your wallet right now. And, and literally, you know, pull, pull it out if you have a wallet and just take a look, take a glance. And uh, I'm not going to require us to pass the baskets again, so that's safe. But pull it out. I've, I've got a 20 here and I'm thinking in my mind, what would I be willing to trade for this $20 bill? And you'll see really quickly how this equation works. I've got to have something that I would trade that's at least worth $20 to me. All right? May or may not be worth $20 to you, but what would I trade this $20 for? Some, sometimes I'd trade this $20 from a good hug from my teenage daughter. <laughs> you know, I, I would definitely trade this $20 for a date night with my wife. That'd be a bargain, you see. And this is how we calculate what is a value, what is a bargain. If the top is greater than the bottom, or in math way to say this is, if the value is greater than one, math people followed that, then you'll make the transaction. If it's less than one, you won't. It's not worth it. Now that you've um, thought about the, the monetary figure, that's the easy one. I'm gonna go a little bit harder. Think about your most valuable material possession. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's a piece of property somewhere. Um, maybe it's a, a car. Or you know, What's your most valuable material possession? What would you trade that for? don't go sentimental on me, just to think about the material value. Um, you know, it's a little harder, but, but still fairly easy. My most valuable material possession is my house. And I don't, I'm not looking to move. But if someone said, Rob, you know, I'll give you a house that's worth twice as much as your house, close by, would you make that trade? I'd say yes, I'd do that. Now I'm gonna go even a little bit harder than that. I want you to think about a, another object, but this time something that's sentimental, has some sentimental value for you. Maybe something passed down to you from your grandparents or great-grandparents or maybe it's a letter that you got from someone long ago that's really meaningful to you or something from your childhood or something from your kid's childhood. What would you be willing to trade that for? Well, well, now that's harder. Let me show you what's going on in the math as I'm raising the stakes on you and essentially saying, look, you're required to give more and more then in your mind you have to get more for what you're going to give for this equation to still equal one or more. I'm gonna take it one other further step and and kind of break the equation. I want you now to think about a person. Who is a person in your life that you value? Maybe the most important person to you or one of the most important people. A spouse, a child, grandchild, a friend, a parent. Somewhere the equation breaks. Here's why the equation breaks. As the denominator approaches infinity, the equation stops working because you cannot divide by infinity. It's an, it's an unknown value. It's undefined. Uh, my, my favorite abbreviation is D-N-E, does not exist. That's what you'll see in math terms sometimes. It does not exist. You can't ask me to trade the most important human relationship in my life for anything. I won't do it. Now, to understand Paul's argument in our text this morning, you have to understand the concept of value because Paul is making a value statement that actually is incredible. Paul, the essence of his argument is there is a treasure of limitless value that's worth all that you have to find it and is not worth you trading it for for anything else. No matter how beautiful or great or amazing something sounds, it's not worth trading for. Once you've found this treasure of limitless value, treasure it above all else. This is where Paul is going to go in his argument, and we're going to teach through it, and then we're going to apply it to our lives. Let's begin in verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Paul's thought is a continuation from the previous message. Lloyd taught this last week in verse 29. He's talking about toiling and struggling with energy. And in verse 1, he says this, "'For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face.'" Um, the word struggle that paul is using is typically used of athletics in the greek con- uh, context you know it would have been common because of, you know the athletic games etc and most commonly it's the word of struggling against an opposition or an opponent so think about wrestling you know that's the very clear way to see what's going on here so there's a, a, an opposing force or an a literal opponent and you're struggling against them you're wrestling it through and that's the idea paul's essentially saying look even though we've never met i'm struggling for you i'm in the fight With you. Now, Laodicea, it's interesting that he brings Laodicea up. Why would he do that? Well, Laodicea was the next closest town to Colossae that apparently had a Christian community. And we know about the church in Laodicea from the book of Revelation. It's one of the seven letters uh, of Jesus to to Laodicea. Now, there was a Lycus River that connects Colossae to Laodicea, it's about 12 miles apart, and these churches would have known each other. There would have been, you know, we've got a Brentwood campus and a Franklin campus, it would have been a little bit like that with a river uh, between the two. Of course, 12 miles in that context was a lot longer than 12 miles for us today, but they would have had some common relationships. If you go to chapter 4, verse 16, I'll read it for you. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. Uh, On page 20 of our uh, Colossians journal, you'll see Paul say this, chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea isn't that interesting? So likely the same courier that dropped off the letter in Colossae would have continued on, drop off the letter in Laodicea, and Paul's saying, make sure you exchange because I want you to both read each other's letters. You may be asking, what happened to the, the letter to the Laodiceans? We don't have it. Interesting. I mean, God's providence, when he preserved the scripture, he chose for us to have Colossians letter, not the Laodicean letter. It's interesting to wonder, imagine what might Paul have written to the Laodiceans. We do not know. Let's come back to the struggle. This is Paul's ministry. He was struggling for them. How so? Is he struggling to write the letter? Is it that difficult to write a letter? I think the kind of struggle Paul is referencing is prayer. He is wrestling for them. He is opposing an enemy force in prayer, in the spiritual realm. And he's going all in and struggle because he loves these people. And he's on his knees and he's crying out to God and struggle for them. By the way, I know not all of you can see this because this whiteboard blocks the way, but you may not have noticed in our Colossians graphic, we're systematically walking through in a clockwise direction through these different images. Thanksgiving and prayer was in chapter one, preeminence of Christ was verses 15 to 20. Our Colossians Creed, we already said. Now we've moved on to Paul's ministry, and that's where we, write, we are. He's in chains, and he's struggling. How is he serving them? How is he struggling them? Primarily in prayer, and he's so fervent in this prayer, and he so desires something for them. He's essentially saying, listen, I'm praying for you because there is something that is so valuable that I want you to get And and I'm gonna tell you what it is. And so he goes on in this next verse. Let's look at it together, two and three. And he's answering this. This is what I want you to get. This is what's so valuable that I'm praying for for you. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse three, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the series, you'll know to put a box around Christ. We're doing that every time we have a direct reference to Jesus Christ. There are 63 in 95 verses in the book of Colossians. So we'll go ahead and draw a box and put that on the screen as well around that word Christ right there. Now, Paul is saying there's something so valuable that I want you to get, and let's just list out what he says, and I'm gonna write them above here uh, uh, into the, this part, the numerator part of our equation, what you get. He's saying the first thing that I really want you to get is I want you to be encouraged in heart. I want you to have encouraged hearts, so I'm just gonna write that right over here, encouraged in heart. Now, what you're gonna see a theme with these things are they're much richer than they first seemed to us. And that's true of this first one, encouraged in heart. Uh, The word encouraged comes from, it's a Greek word, it says, it's parakaleo, it's a compound verb. Para means alongside, kaleo means call. So to call alongside. Think about if you're running a race and you're struggling, if you're physically ill and you're struggling, or even if, you know, my daughter with, with homework, she's struggling. You call someone alongside. You need some encouragement. You're going to have someone run with you. You're going to have someone work with you, someone struggle with you. That, that person has come. He's been called alongside you to encourage you, to strengthen you. It has that idea too. So Paul is saying, I want you to be encouraged or strengthened. Where? In heart. Again, we know fellowship, we talk about heart a lot. Mission statement, helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. It's not just the sentimental part of you or the romantic part of you or the emotional part of you. From a biblical perspective, it's the core of you. It's your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, and your choices. It's all that you are inside. It's the true you. Paul is saying, be strengthened there. Think better. Let your emotions be more healthy. Would your desires be healthier? And will you make... Choices of your will that all align in unity and cohesiveness and integration. Paul is saying that's the kind of strength I desire for you. That's a big prayer. That's something he's struggling for. Let's go on to the next one. He says next, not only I want you to be encouraged in heart, but I want you to be knit together. Knit together in love. Now, he's not talking about internally knit together. We could say that too, going back to our heart idea. But in this context, he's talking about a community being knit together. So one of our core values here at Fellowship is we are better together. And it's this idea of being united, of being unified, of being reconciled, of being together, of being on the same page, so to speak, uh, of knowing scripture talks a lot about this concept of community. The only thing that can knit together together truly a group of people is love and not shallow sentimentality or romantic kind of love is being referred to here. Paul's talking about the love of Christ, the self-sacrificial, I will lay down my desire and need for the sake of you, whom I love, that's the kind of love that will knit people together, that will bond people together, so to speak. So that's the second one. He's gonna go on to say a third one, and this third one, he's gonna use an awful lot of words because he's saying something profound. Let's take a look, this is uh, still in verse two. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, that's a lot of words, and I'll explain in a minute why I think Paul is using so many words, but here's what he's getting after. Knowing Christ. But I think he's using so many words because he's trying to communicate this is not just intellectual knowledge about Jesus. This is relational and experiential knowing. So he says, the riches of full assurance. Guys, it's not until you really know someone in a deep relational way that you have full assurance and confidence when you're around them, that you can be comfortable in your own skin, you see. Full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Two weeks ago, I had the, the big black box and I said, you know, God had been showing little by little what the great mystery was throughout all the progressive revelation of Scripture and he finally gets to the New Testament the person of Jesus lifted up the box. Underneath the box, it's, it's the, the table, it's the, the body, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's Christ. Christ is the mystery. Paul keeps kind of riffing off of that same theme now and what he's essentially saying is there's nothing greater. Knowing Christ... Now I want you to think about this. Um, someone who was blind could know a lot about the color blue. Scientifically speaking, they could know everything. They could know a lot more about blue, technically, scientifically, than I could, but they don't know blue like I do because I've seen it. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to know Christ with that kind of experiential, relational way. There is nothing greater. And then if, as if that's not enough, we get to verse three, and let me just read this to you. Verse three, in whom, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we're gonna write this one more thing up above here. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this one is maybe the best example of something that doesn't seem incredible to us, but it would have to Paul's original audience. Let me explain. Wisdom was a huge deal to the Hebrew people. Wisdom was a huge deal in the Old Testament, and we we talked about this in our Ecclesiastes series, but it's worth reminding us a, a little bit. In Old Testament wisdom literature, wisdom is the highest end. Wisdom is the great value that's worth giving everything for. Uh, let me just uh, read to you for a moment from Proverbs 2, verses 1 to 6. This is Solomon, you know, the man we associate with wisdom. The Bible says he was the wisest man that had lived. This is what he writes about wisdom, Proverbs 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, Indeed, if you call out for insight, cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Do you hear what the wisest man in the world, Solomon, was trying to teach his son? He's essentially saying, wisdom is so valuable, it's worth everything for. Search for it like treasure, like silver. It's that valuable. What now Paul is saying to add to this theological idea about wisdom is all of wisdom, all the treasures that are there are in Jesus. In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wisdom is this incredibly valuable commodity. Why is it so valuable? Because it teaches you how to live life in a way that leads to flourishing. That leads to fullness. We use this illustration in Ecclesiastes. I pulled out the, the board game, the game of life, and, and I rummaged through all the pieces. You know, there's money, there's houses, there's cars. You know, it's like, I love playing this game as a kid because it's like, you know, you want to be a doctor. You don't want to be a, you know, whatever else because the doctors make more money, you know, and it's, it teaches our kids terrible lessons. But anyway, <laughs> I said, what's the most valuable thing in this box? It's, it's not the currency, it's not the houses, it's not the cars. The most valuable thing in the box is the instruction manual because it teaches you how to play the game. It teaches you how to win the game. That's wisdom. Why is wisdom connected to God? Because God created us, men and women. And God, he he was the architect that designed us to flourish and thrive in certain ways. Wisdom is your ability to live according to the ways that God says you will function and you will thrive. What Paul is saying is Jesus Christ is the embodiment. He is the incarnation of God's wisdom. The word of God made flesh. So if you want to know how to live, if you want to know how to thrive, thrive if you want to know how to be full if you want to actually have to have joy not just meager happiness look to Jesus know Jesus follow Jesus he is the great treasure now I want you just to look at what Paul is struggling for in prayer for these believers encouraged in heart knit together in love Knowing Jesus Christ, then they would have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you see where he's going with this? He's building a case, men and women, that that this value equation looks like this. In Christ, there is no limit to what you get. There's no limit. You you might think of it this way, too. If you you think about this mathematically, what you're going to actually have is, is over here on the value side... Jesus Christ, infinite value. No limit in all of this stuff. There's nothing more valuable. Joe, I think I might have just broke the thing. I heard something beat. so just FYI. We'll see if it works later. (laughs) Now, if Jesus Christ is a treasure of inexhaustible wealth... Here's what Paul is building to. You've found him. Don't trade him for anything. You've found him. Lean into him. Open yourself up to him. Mind the depths of his wisdom and knowledge. In fact, what's interesting about the treasure of Jesus is is the the more you you, you dig in and and pull out jewel by jewel and and really see all that's in this treasure chest that is Jesus Christ and, and your relationship with him, the more valuable he becomes to you. And so with that context, Paul goes on to this very next verse, and I think it'll make perfect sense, the logic he's building here. Look at verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I, I'm telling you all of this is so that you will not give this up for anything, I'm telling you this because there's going to be other people that are going to come along and they're going to say, listen, have you thought about this or thought about that? Have you considered this philosophy or that other thing? And what Paul is saying is, is, listen, those have no substance to them comparatively. In fact, in the Greek, the the idea of plausible arguments might better be translated fine-sounding arguments. Uh, uh, Plato, rather, used the same Greek idea, same Greek term, when he talks about, you know, how how something sounds good with with a great oration, you know, verbal flourish, but the argument lacks any kind of weight or evidence. And and Paul is using that same idea. It's fine-sounding arguments, but they don't hold water. They don't pass the scrutiny test. So this fits really well in Paul's argument. He's saying Jesus is the most valuable possible possession that you could have. Might not always seem like it. You might not always recognize the treasure that you have, but there's no need to look anywhere else. It's not ever worth trading for anything else, any other idea, any other philosophy, any other fine-sounding thing. So don't be deluded. Don't be fooled. By the way, this isn't diluted like, you know, you're pouring water into something to make it diluted. It's a different word. Diluted means to be tricked, to be fooled, don't be fooled, don't be pulled astray, he's saying. Now, I was thinking about this idea, and I'm thinking about the interesting day and time that we live in, where, guys, there's a lot of fine-sounding arguments out there. Are there not? And, and I'd say the fine-sounding, fine-sounding argument of our day primarily is um, wh- wh- whatever is your truth is your truth, and whatever is my truth is my truth, and, and you really can't tell me that, that mine is less valuable than yours. I just want you to see, with the weight of God's word, Paul says the exact opposite. And Some of you, that might not mean anything to you because you don't actually believe the scripture is true. You don't believe it was spoken out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But let me encourage those of us who do believe that the scripture is true, and then I'm going to encourage the others a little later. If you believe the scripture is true, Paul is directly saying, no, no, no. It's not everyone's truth is, has equal weight. It's saying there is a treasure that has no limit, and there is nothing else you can put on the, the other side of the equation that's going to balance that out, you see. This is the argument that Paul is making, and the, the more that I grew up in my faith, the more that I'm convinced that Christianity is Christ. We dress it up with all this other stuff. You know, some of it has its place in time, but at the end of the day, it's about knowing Jesus and following Jesus. Christianity is Christ. And I think what the Spirit is speaking to us today through this text is a conviction that Jesus is our faith. There should be no component of who we are as a a fellowship or or any cause or issue that we take on or engage that does not pass through Jesus as the center of all things. I think that's one of the reasons that God has led us to this study because I think it's important for our time. Don't let anyone delude you in any other direction, Paul is saying, the Spirit is saying, no matter how fine-sounding or plausible their arguments Verse five is gonna close our text for the morning. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Put a box around that last word, another direct reference to Jesus. We're working our way through these as we go. Now, Paul in verse four just warned them, but now he's encouraging them again, essentially saying, you're doing great. Now, some of the other letters that Paul wrote, he's not able to say you're doing great. Like, he's just hitting them hard. Apparently, false teaching wasn't yet a big issue in Colossae, but Paul is saying, I want to give you an immunization. We're not treating a disease yet, but I want to give you an immunization so you don't get the disease of this false teaching. You're doing great. Keep on keeping on, so to speak. Uh, There's a phrase here that I think is worth a minute on uh, I am with you in spirit. We use that phrase today sometimes, um, and and when we say it, what we mean is, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Um, it, it, we're trying to show empathy, a sense of witness. You know, as well, I can't be there, but I'll be there in spirit. Uh, Paul's saying something more than that here. The reason we know this is because you can read all of Paul's writing in the New Testament, as you know, there's a lot of it. And every time he mentions the spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not just talking about thoughts and prayers. He's not talking about like, well, my spirit and your spirit. No, 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 no. He's saying, I'm with you in spirit. In other words, the same spirit of Christ that is in me, Paul is writing, is in you. And there is a unity there. So I want you to think about this. Paul's writing these words down inspired by the Spirit, the, the Scripture is God-breathed, we believe, and so the Spirit sort of breathing out this word through the human author of Paul. It's a dual authorship. There's some mystery there. Then it gets delivered to these folks in Colossae, and they read it, and the same Spirit that authored the text through Paul is illuminating the text to them and, and is resonating with them and saying, this is what you need to pay attention to. Did you hear that? You understand this? Now, I want to take this one other place. Therefore, there is a unity of spirit that we share with these believers and with Paul himself. And I'm not trying to get all weird on you and say, you know, the spirit of Paul's in the room. You know, no, 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 no. The spirit of Christ is in this room. The spirit of Christ indwells us as believers. The same spirit, the same person, third person of the Trinity that indwelled Paul, indwelled the believers 2,000 years ago in this little church in Colossae, now indwells the believers in Brentwood. Do you see this? I hope this encourages you, that the spirit, the same spirit that inspired and breathed out these words through this man, brilliant man, Paul, that he used 2,000 years ago, is the same spirit today that is re-speaking the words, even as I am teaching them this morning. This is why every, every time we finish the scripture reading in our, our service liturgy, we, we say these words. This is the living word of God for us today. It's not dead because of the Holy Spirit, you see. I am with you in spirit, Paul says. Let's move on to our application this morning and I just wanna share with you for a few minutes some thoughts some encouragement for you, an expression of my struggle as I have prayed for you this week. My favorite parable in the scripture, one of my favorites, is a single verse. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, why would this man sell all that he has with joy? In his joy, he sells all that he has. The only way he could do that is he knows that what he's getting on this side of the equation is so much greater than what he's giving up. So I don't know what his home was worth. I don't know what his property was worth. I don't know what his livestock was worth. But he knew in an instant after he saw that treasure, after he uncovered that treasure in that field that didn't even belong to him yet. He knew in an instant if I could just have this treasure, if I could own this field, not for the sake of the field, but for the sake of the treasure, it is worth infinitely more than what I already have. So with joy, he makes the trade. What would you give for something of immeasurable value? all that you have. If you were actually convinced that it was of immeasurable value, you would give all that you have. Let me complete our equation if I didn't break the board. No limit what you get means down here on the bottom. No limit in what you're willing to give Now the equation works. Jesus Christ is the treasure. Your relationship with him is the most important thing you have. He's worth everything. He's worth all that you are. And he asks of everything from you. He asks for all that you have and all that you are. This is where we get a little uncomfortable, but I'm telling you guys, the only, the only reason you get a little uncomfortable is because you don't actually think that what's up here is worth it. Now, I'm not saying that you trade your life for your salvation. That was Jesus' job. He did it for you. But I am saying that when Jesus calls a man or a woman to follow him, he calls all of them all of who you are, every bit of you. And, and God has put this on my heart, I believe, because we live in a context in a day where it's just so easy for us just to kind of just do the religious thing. And, and I, I, I'm not like calling down judgment on you. What I'm actually saying is you can just do the religious thing and what's actually going on is you're minimizing what you give, you're minimizing what you get, not in the sense that you're not saved, but in the sense that you're not experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus came for you to experience, you see. What is there to lose by giving yourself to Jesus Christ? Nothing. 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 Christianity is Christ. Put all your chips on that square. For some of you, that's like a financial call. For some of you, it's a time issue. For some of you, it's a habit or a hang up that you're just hanging on to. You just won't give that over to your your king. For all of us, there's something that we withhold. Why withhold? Do you see the treasure? that is yours in Jesus Christ. I want to ask the ushers if they would come forward and prepare to serve communion to us this morning. And as they come, I I just want to speak to those of you that don't actually believe any of this is true. And like, you're you're not our enemy. (laughs) You're our friends. Like, you're our neighbors and coworkers and parts of our family and 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 in a sense you if you come to this church regularly you're you're part of this you're part of this but but you're you're missing out on the treasure it's like you're 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 talking all around it you're you're attending all around it you're kind of dancing all around it but that you've yet yet to really take it you've yet to really take it and I just want to say maybe for some of you in the room this morning that this is the morning that the spirit of God says listen I have something for you beyond what you've experienced and I'm granting you the faith to believe this morning. And if that's the case, it's as simple as saying, I, I, I'm willing to make this trade that, that, that Jesus made the trade for me, his life for my life, my, his death for my death. And through faith, I receive that gift, that treasure, and I put my faith in Christ this morning. And if that expresses your heart, you're about to have this tray passed around take it with us. If this expresses your heart this morning in true, in in belief, as best as you can understand, I believe Jesus lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I deserve, and was raised again. Take the bread, take the cup, be a part of this family of faith in a new way this morning. For all of us who have put our faith in Christ at any point years ago up to this very instant, I wanna encourage you to reflect on something as the trays are passed. You can go ahead and begin passing them out. I want you to reflect on this. Is Jesus the most valuable thing you possess? Do you believe that he is? If so, if so, what does that mean for you in this value equation? What are you willing to to invest in that relationship? If you actually believe the scripture is true, what are are you willing to say, I'm all in? What would it look like for you to be all in on Christ? And yet, you know, for some of you, you might have put your faith in Christ, but you don't really believe he's the greatest treasure that you possess. And if that's the case, I want you to reflect for just a moment on why not. Why not? What is it in your life that is more valuable to you than Christ? Let's reflect on those questions together as these trays are passed.